My name is Malavika Perseid, and I'm the host of Your Favorite Book, a podcast all about asking that big question, what's your favorite book and why? I have no real credentials. I just really love books, and I love talking to writers and readers alike about the books that have inspired them and made them who they are in one way, shape, or form. And my guest this week is Chelsea Beaker, the author of the novel Godshot, and now recently her debut collection of short stories. Chelsea is amazing to talk to, and we really had a good time talking about our book this week, which is Animal by Lisa Tadeo. As always, no major spoilers here for Chelsea's book or for Lisa Tadeo's book, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a little bit of a difficult one in terms of subject matter, so just want to state that right off the bat. Anyway, welcome to your favorite book. Chelsea, welcome to the show. I'm not sure where you are in the world right now, but outside my window, we have a torrential snowstorm. So I'm really hoping you have better weather than I do. Oh my gosh. Yes, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and we've had a week of really beautiful weather. Actually, it's kind of been sunny and warmer, but I heard on the radio today that there could be some snow on the way, which always feels wrong once we hit this sort of spring-like, you know, gesture to go backward, but that's just how it is up here, so. I get you, although when you say spring, I'm just laughing in my head because I'm I'm out in Chicago and, like, snow continues into May. Like, there there is no spring. It doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's jump right into this. So you have a collection of short stories out, Heartbroke. Um, it's a few years after your debut novel, Godshot. And in this book, this collection, you're taking on characters centered around the California Central Valley. That's correct, right? That's right. Yeah. And so I've never been to California, like at all. And this is a setting I knew nothing about. Can you just paint a picture for me? Tell me a little bit about this place, where it is, and how you feel about it. Yeah, I would love to. It's definitely not the California that we see in mainstream media, when when we think California, usually there's surfers and celebrities and mountains and, you know, mm-hmm. the beach. There's all these images that come to mind for people, I think. And the Central Valley is really, it's this agricultural middle part. It's right in the middle of, of the state. It's Fresno itself is actually like the fifth biggest city in California. So it's mm-hmm. really populated. It's um, kind of this sprawl that just runs through the very center. And it's really the a hotspot for the world's agriculture. I mean, so much of our food comes from there. So mm-hmm. it's sort of got a subculture that is really different from the rest of California. I think it's been referred to as kind of the Bible Belt of California. Mm-hmm. You've got the Clovis Cowboys, you know, there's, um, you could find any, any way of life in this, in this one kind of region. And it was always fascinating to me. I grew up there um, for the most part and was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather was a raisin farmer he founded the agriculture program at Fresno State University. So we were really involved with that part of it. And I think it's interesting growing up there too, because so much of there, there is a disconnect from the land, even if you're living there. I think sometimes people living there don't even really realize how 
much of the world's food comes from there. So I grew up there and my writing just always circled back to that area. Um, I think that's common for a lot of writers. I, I just had to like get that out of my system perhaps, but definitely my first two books, um, Godshot and Heartbroke have really centered there. And and definitely, of course, I fictionalized the, mm-hmm. the region too. I wouldn't say it's this exact mirroring. Um, I wanted to make some of the areas have fictional names just so I'd have a little more freedom with mm-hmm. the detailing, but it's definitely recognizable to the people that live there, I think. Yeah. And there's this sense of a real authenticity there. And when you mentioned your grandfather was a, a raisin farmer, I'm thinking back to some of the stories where that's such a pivotal point. And you know, that that's not something you can just kind of pull out from nowhere. Raisin farming. It's not something you often think about, but I'm like, I guess raisins have to come from somewhere. <laughs> they don't come from the store. Um, and you're exactly right. It is a part of California you don't often see represented. And even just within your story, there's this diversity of voices and diversity of perspectives that we get, even though they're all from the same region. And so I was telling you before we started, I absolutely loved your collection. I I could not put it down. Like I'd tell myself, okay, I'm going to read this one story. And then the next one would show up. I'm like, okay, okay, one more, one more. And that that's hard to do with short stories. They usually feel very discreet. They're easy to put down, but yours, I just, I kept going. And what I loved about it is you just achieve this diversity in tones. You have this difficult subject matter, but then you love a story with this really strong voice and a lot of humor and a lot of wit, you know, right after and stories that mix these things together. And so I guess the question ultimately after all of this is, you know, in the process of putting a collection together, is there a conscious effort to vary the tones or is that just a a byproduct of writing a set of stories? Yeah. Well, when I started writing these stories, you know, some I, I started over 10 years ago. So they, they really have traveled with me a long time. And I certainly wasn't thinking about how they would work together when mm-hmm. I began. That was definitely more of something I, I got to look at toward the end of that process, toward the moment where I realized, you know, as we were getting ready to submit Godshot to editors, I realized, hey, wait a second, like I actually, there's actually another book that has emerged around at the same time. Um, Every time I would want to take a break from writing Godshot, I'd write a short story or, you know, a lot of characters didn't ultimately make it into the novel, but they still really kept me up at night. And so Mm -hmm. then they would have their own short story. So there's so much, there's overlap that I think I see so clearly. I don't know if a reader would see I, I think they would see it. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, they're really like kind of holding hands. So after I put all the stories together, um, I did think about, you know, varying the tone, trying to vary some of the voices, thinking about subject matter that I was kind of circling again and again. Yeah. And I didn't want to be too repetitive, but I think that this, the collection ultimately does really to me at least it did feel cohesive with a lot of the themes and and what some of the characters were searching for and experiencing um I did my best to keep the voices as varied as possible so if you read it all the way through it it would kind of have that nuance but um yeah there's some some voicey characters in there so (laughs) 
absolutely. Like some of them have just kind of stuck with me and I'm, I'm terrible at remembering names of short stories, but like the characters have, have stuck with me. I'm thinking about the name is blanking on me. The story centering around the cowboy and our narrator in that story, her voice was just unmistakable. And I'm like, I could have read a whole book in that character's voice, but then you'd move on entirely to a completely different style of voice. And that would be compelling too. And that's just so hard to do. Um, But getting to the subject matter you were alluding to. So one of the subjects that you seem to be kind of approaching again, again, in this collection was motherhood, you know, motherhood, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a daughter and sort of the shades in between. Almost every story has this tenuous relationship to motherhood. We see bad mothers, absent mothers, mothers who are trying, mothers who have given up, you know, all these different shades and kind of an ugliness to motherhood that we as a society are still, I I would say we're, we're starting to come to terms with. I feel like, and I'm saying this as someone who's not a parent yet, Um, but I feel like the pandemic has shined this light on motherhood a little bit and is showing us at times how difficult and thankless and not as idyllic as it maybe seemed. Do you think that the pandemic has shaped at all how you write about motherhood? Do you think that was a factor at all? Yeah, well, I finished these stories in 2018. So it was was prior to the pandemic, but I did my last like big edit on the collection during the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. it is interesting. I think you're right that as a society, we are taking steps forward to acknowledge the breadth of what motherhood can be and what it is. And I think mothers are held to this extremely high standard. Um, I just saw a cartoon on Instagram that was really summed it up well, where it was like, a split screen and you would see the dad doing the same task as the mother and it would be have the label above him like amazing dad like involved parent and the mom's doing like the same thing and it's like negligent mother distracted like I'm gasping because right before we started this call, I looked at that same cartoon. Did you? Five minutes ago. And I'm like, what are the odds? It's so good though. And I think that definitely, you know, I became a parent in 2014 and that was so obvious to me. And I think my own journey in parenthood, it did change the way I was writing parents in the collection where, you know, I started writing some of these stories as a 25-year-old, you know, with most of my experience with motherhood involved being the child in Mm -hmm. that relationship. And by the end of this book's kind of evolution, I was a parent to two children. And I think what it offered me in the edits, in that editorial process, was really to question some of my first instincts about um, how these parents were being represented. I think, you know, I didn't change things necessarily, but in some of the stories, the the parents did change quite a bit just because I was like, wait a second, like this is, um, this is a really hard job. (laughs) And, and these parents are extremely flawed in the book. They're making these really horrendous decisions. They're not always taking their kids into consideration. They're often, weighed down by poverty and addiction. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, I just also, I think just the wisdom of age, like 25 to 35 is quite a leap in life experience. And, and I think I was able to access those characters. Hopefully, I hope in a, 
more nuanced way than I maybe first did. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think the pandemic has brought out this new awareness. We're just seeing more mothers on the screen, you know, the lost daughter that Mm -hmm. Maggie Gyllenhaal directed, um, by Elena Ferrante. I mean, we're seeing these mothers that are kind of making these decisions that I don't know if it would have been palpable even a few years ago, even definitely not 10 years ago, it would have just been this huge, like bad mother label rejection. Yeah. And now we're starting, I hope, I hope we're starting to see um, just all the shades because I love this idea that, you know, two things are always true. Like you love your children and maybe you also are not in love with the drudgery and the daily mm-hmm. tasks of motherhood. And that's actually fine. That's okay. Like <laughs> it doesn't have to be just one way. So that's so true. I, I feel like there's this fear of acknowledging the nuance of parenthood. And I feel like if your, your book did anything, it, it showed us some of those nuances, even when they were uncomfortable for us to read about. I mean, you read abuse, you read neglect, you read generational trauma, but these are real things that happened to a lot of people. I thought you handled the subjects with grace and, you know, it made you think about motherhood in different ways. And, um, and I can imagine that going from being a child to being a mother allowed you to sort of look at that in multiple perspectives. Yeah. Thank you. And then another thing that sort of stuck out to me, and this might be a bit frivolous to note. Um, I know authors don't have a lot of say in the covers of their books, but one thing that just stands out to me is the two covers you've gotten for your books. Like they just they just have this aesthetic to them. I mean, I'm thinking of the Godshot cover, that beautiful gold glitter. And then this one, it's these these candy necklaces, which are explicitly mentioned, I believe, in Lyra. There's the candy necklaces. Um, do you have any say over your your covers? Are you happy with how your covers turn out? I'm always interested in hearing authors talk about that. Yes. Um I love talking about the covers. I, I definitely give all credit to the genius of Nicole Caputo, who's the designer for Catapult, and she designs for other publishing houses too. But she's such a smart reader. And I think, you know, both times, both times I got the email with the cover in it, it's it's such an intense moment to see it for the first time. And both times I was like pleasantly shocked. I think my brain doesn't always work in that visual way. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as like, if you asked me what the cover should be, I wouldn't, I don't know. I'd probably Mm -hmm. be like, I don't know, a landscape. Like I don't really, it, it, the way that she's able to pull out, I think like a detail, one small detail from the book and blow it up in that way. Mm -hmm. Definitely the, the heartbroken cover when I saw it, I was so surprised to see a detail that I had written that's really just like it's one detail in one story Um, to see it magnified like that. I think Mm -hmm. it really pointed to this crucial thing about the book, which is that the book is is so dark. It's rough. It's looking at these difficult things, but it's also got this like candy coated mm-hmm. like desire going on and and yeah. these characters are striving for for this kind of like artificial like sweetness like mm-hmm. I think it really was like the perfect contrast for the stories and it's a million miles from anything I could have dreamt up but that's why she does why she's so good at what she does I'm so glad you pointed that out because that occurred to me when I because I, at first I was reading it and I 
until we got to Liar and you see that detail mentioned, I'm like, why did they choose this picture? And I'm thinking like, maybe it'll be the toxic beach would have made a cover. I don't know. I was thinking broad landscape wise, something showing us the valley. But then you see those candy necklaces and you're like, a lot of your stories feature children Mm -hmm. that are either, you know, victims of parentification or abuse in other ways are forced to grow up a lot before their time, but they're still holding on to these marks of childhood too. So there's not only this chase for this candy coated sweetness, but also this innocence with a candy necklace and just how that's perceived too. So I I thought it was brilliant. I thought it said a lot about your collection and it's certainly eye catching. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And then the last thing that came to mind for me about your collection before we talk a little bit about the book you chose for the episode is your collection spans like quite a bit of time. We go from stories that feature sort of the social media age and YouTube comments and things like that to stories that are clearly in the past. I mean, they they tackle things we still deal with today, like internalized homophobia and outright homophobia, but there are stories we can very much tell take place in the past. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how much research goes into understanding a place that you innately know and how much do you think has really changed in the Central Valley? Yeah, I mean, a a lot of the stories and the characters that take place here in that, in that past, you know, we, we follow one character named Pretty over sort of his whole life and we see him from different vantage points and I think that was important to me to kind of go back to the beginning of his life where we see him right before he's kind of come of age and about to enlist in Vietnam. We see that moment before that really pivotal shift for him. And I wanted to go back there because I wanted a way to understand that character because later Mm -hmm. we see him really living this like kind of sad life. We see him making decisions that are not great. We see him um, become an abusive person. Um, You know, we see all these things. And I think it's so easy to be like, oh, well, he did that. And so he is this one way. And it was important for me to go back to the start and kind of look at what what shapes a person to later become that that way. And I think that's really just my it was I can see clearly now it was like my own expedition to understand my father. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of the details are super fictionalized, but I think the heart of that journey back in time is also like a journey that I was taking to kind of understand his life in a different way, um, from various vantage points. So the research I did, um, often involved just talking to him, just listening, Mm -hmm. um, the story where we see him as a teenager, uh, you know, that that's really inspired by a story that my dad would tell me a lot. And, mm-hmm. and the characters and he was just a really great storyteller. And so it was so entertaining listening to him. And, and I think those places and the his telling of it was almost enough for me to jump off that like fictional ledge, I didn't feel mm-hmm. the need to, to get too into, um, into research other than like the necessary things to make sure years lined up and and that certain certain things would have been there um but I relied a lot on his sort of reported experience and that's what I love about fiction because you can take that and then you can run with it and 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 that's fine so I love that freedom 
Yeah, I I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that element of the personal with me in this setting. I mean, I can definitely see how an experience like that would inform the writing. And I, I did appreciate you contextualizing a difficult character like Pretty and being able to see him from multiple points. And especially with most of the stories featuring on the narratives of women, it was definitely a departure to follow this man and his sort of struggles with things like masculinity and identity and what have you. So definitely added even more dimension to your collection. So overall, for everybody listening, you definitely want to check this collection out. Um, I certainly really loved it. And I have a complex relationship to short stories. I'm always kind of like picking and choosing which ones I like here and there, but I just really loved the whole of this. And I thought it came together really well. So Chelsea, I thought she did a great job and I'm just one person, but hopefully others agree. Oh, thank you so much. That means the world to me. And so now I want to transition a little to talking about the book you picked. And we were talking a little bit about uh, this before, and you were saying, you know, this is the book you've been thinking a lot about now because it's a it's a very recent book. It's Animal by Lisa Tadeo. Uh, before we all dive in to provide you all a brief summary. So in this novel, Exploring Trauma and the Impact of Patriarchal Violence, Tadeo follows 36-year-old Joan, who is attempting to get in touch with the mysterious Alice in order to make sense of her fraught childhood and nightmarish recent past. I can't really say more than that without really delving into spoilers, which we always try to avoid here. But needless to say, Joan goes through a lot of shit and it's just relentless. Um, But Chelsea, can you tell me a little bit about your experiences reading this book? Yeah, this book was one of those books that just felt like it had cracked something open in me and was it was showing me this some sort of darkness that I had inside of me <laughs> like I can't explain it any other way it was sort of this book where you're reading it and it feels like hot in your hands like you're just turning pages quickly or I, I would feel like out of breath reading it because I felt like the voice of Joan to me was saying things that we don't see said a lot. We don't hear Mm -hmm. things said in just this way. The narrator is so poignant and so ruthlessly honest, I would say. I mean, and I think women can see their experience in Joan's experience. It's, it's this blown up experience. It's so like, I, I felt like it was this book that just kept expanding on what I thought it was going to be. It would then open like another door and it would yeah. become a new thing. And I love books that continue to surprise until the very end. And mm-hmm. I was just so impressed with it. I read it again almost immediately because the first time I read it was like, I was just like, I got to know what happens. And then right. the second time was like, now I need to slow down because the sentences are so beautiful here. And um it's just operating on this really high level for me in all those ways. And it's approaching, like we were talking about earlier, it's approaching those difficult um, things about motherhood from, from various angles. We see, we see the narrator grappling with it both as a a person that's lost their mother. And then also someone who, you know, is entertaining what motherhood might mean for herself as well at the same time. And I'm just a sucker for that story. So It's definitely a compelling narrative. And I think that's probably what I liked most about the book is 
sort of at the prose level, the line by line explorations of this kind of psyche. I mean, there are just these throwaway lines in the book that would just get at something really honest and just really meaningful. Like the way she describes men looking at her a certain way as like these like small rapes that we don't expect. And that's just such powerful charged language. But in the context of this book, it it makes sense. These like small acts of violence, these almost microaggressions, just this constant feel of unease that we were able to bring about in the prose. I thought that was really well done. Um, had you read any of Tadeo's other work? I have a copy of Three Women on my shelf, but I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm curious to know how this kind of goes along with her other work if you've read it. I have. Well, it's funny. I also had Three Women. It was always on my like to-read list, and I'd been lazy about it for some reason. I read Animal first, I think, and then read Three Women directly after and felt like an, a total idiot for, for waiting on that one. Um, right. Three Women also hits me really deeply. I mean, it's a really different book, but I think the way her brain works is why I chose this book for us to talk about today, too, because she's honestly an author that now I want to know what she's going to say about anything. I mean, she's so good at distilling, like you were saying, like the experience that women go through throughout our lives, um, the the sort of currency of what it means to just exist as a woman Mm -hmm. and all of the silent agreements we must make just to get through unscathed, you know? Um, And the the small rapes line is perfect. It's like this idea that there's always a payment for everything given mm-hmm. with a man. Not always. I yeah, of course we're, mm-hmm. I'm talking in extremes now, but it's like, but you learn this as like a young girl that mm-hmm. we often like our kindness, our attention, our complicit nature is is something we must offer in order to not then have to deal with whatever repercussion it would be, and. Yeah. And going along through life like that. And she, the way that she gets at that in both books, I think, is it was just sort of done in a way I hadn't seen before. And that felt immediately true to me. Yeah, that makes sense. I I definitely do plan to get to three women at at some point. I've got like a mountain of books I need to read, as all of us do, if you're listening to this show. Um, But thinking about Animal... So on a prose level, I really enjoyed aspects of this book. Overall, I don't think it totally worked for me. And it's been hard for me to kind of articulate why. Um, But I know all of today's work tends to be very polarizing. Three Women was polarizing. This book was definitely polarizing. I saw all kinds of reviews for this everywhere. I think for me, it came down to pacing. Like Mm. you can kind of bring it all to pacing. The book starts at this very slow kind of character focused unfolding And then you hit a point where things, without spoiling, things really ramp up. And then it just doesn't let up. And the way you were alluding to, you like books that surprise you to the end. I do as well, but it just felt like all those surprises were compressed so much into that last portion. And some of them were pretty beautifully foreshadowed. I mean, I'll just mention coyotes. Like that's brought up early enough that you know the coyotes are going to come back. But some of it, I, I just wondered, and it got me thinking about this larger idea of, you know, is there a line between writing about trauma and tr- so-called trauma porn or trauma dumping? Because there is, I can give you every trigger warning for this book. Like this book will affect you in some way, shape or form. And not all of us may be okay with addressing that right now, but 
this book was a lot. And I don't know. I think I was wondering if it was gratuitous. I think some people can definitely fall into that lines. I think some people would probably appreciate the speed at which it accelerates. I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think this is something I think about a lot. I was just talking with someone else about how early on, like I remember in my MFA program, a lot of the feedback I would get about my stories were that like I was piling on the tragedy or piling on the, like you're saying, like the trauma, like just, it was just like a big truck full that I would. And, and I think that at that time I felt like, okay, the answer for me I can't speak for Lisa, but the answer for me with that was not necessarily to lessen the tragedy or reduce the load, but it was to figure out a way that my craft could rise to the occasion Mm -hmm. to carry it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was something I eventually landed on because I wanted to stay true to myself, but I also understood the critique of feeling sort of slammed over the head with, (laughs) with what you're saying, like too much. Um, for me, I felt like the book was carrying the load. Um, mm-hmm. And and it, it's probably just because I'm like always craving books that are going to go to like the darkest depth. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's a personal thing. I would agree with you. It's, it's definitely a book to walk into and know that it's not going to pull back on anything. The images we're going to see are really brutal. The story we're being told is brutal. The life experience of this character is ultimately, um, you know, she experiences some of the worst things we can imagine and it's not shied away from. So Mm -hmm. if that's your thing, you know, I don't know. I, to me, I do crave, I think it goes back to, you know, some of my own childhood experiences that seemed so like off the charts crazy that almost you felt like no one would believe this really happened. I think that perhaps for me is like the seed of always wanting to find books that are kind of speaking that language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like this book was speaking that language. So I think yeah. I was, I'm just into it. I can't say what it is exactly. I see what you mean for sure. But I think I am able in some sense to let up on my need for a perfectly paced something if it, yeah. if in exchange I'm really seeing what um what feels important to me I guess. I don't I think know. That's a great that's a great way of putting it and you've acknowledged something big and that's that you know what may seem like trauma dumping to one person that might be just an honest expression by the writer and there is a privilege to be acknowledged that your trauma is reading it. Some people have experienced lives that resemble the kind of trauma that we're seeing here and telling them that this may seem unrealistic from the get-go. I mean, that's ignoring some lived experience. This is a complicated conversation to have, which is why to me, I was like, I think this book had room for all of the topics it brought up. I think I just would have varied the pacing a little bit to sort of give the room that we needed for some of the topics. But I think overall, like there's a lot that this book takes on and I appreciate the ambition of it. I think the other thing that comes to mind for me, and it's kind of a make or break on how you're going to feel about this book. And it's how you feel about Joan. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about Joan because 
you know, she she's a tough character. I mean, on the jacket copy of this book, there's that those lines, I am depraved, I hope you like me. And I think those lines say a lot because there's this compulsive need to be loved, but there's also this lack of empathy that we're dealing with. Like there are decisions Joan makes that are sociopathic. I can never say that word right. But (laughs) you aren't really meant to like her. Or at least I didn't like her. I'm sure a lot of people didn't like her. And I think I, I am not the kind of person that demands a likable protagonist. That's very limiting for storytelling. But I found her perspective exhausting. I think it was just exhausting because it's a very it's a very eye focused narrative. A narrative you could count the number of eyes on the page. You are so in her head that it it weighs down on you a little as a reader. And while you get the significance of it, it doesn't make this necessarily a. Uh, an easy read. Not every book has to be an easy read. I'm bringing up a lot here, but do you get what I'm saying with this? (laughs) I do. I do. It's so funny. You mentioned those lines that are on the jacket, those like kind of famous lines that we, that were attached to the book for so much of the promotion where it's like, I am depraved. Mm -hmm. I hope you like me. When I first saw those, not having read the book, I'm reading it in this different tone. I'm reading it. Like, I hope you like me like a challenge almost. And then later when we encounter the lines in the story, yeah. I read it. I read that second part. I hope you like me as sincere. <laughs> and it's sort of heartbreaking. It's like, she's, you know, there, I won't spoil it. She it's directed towards someone specific. And yeah. um, for me, there was this like dance between that sort of um, those moments where it's like, wow, this is a challenging character. And then I could bounce back pretty easily into like, um, we're seeing the results of this like really horrific lived experience. And, and what I think it did, it was like, so often, I think the narrative we want to be told is that if we endure hardship, we will come out on the right side and be Mm -hmm. better for it. Like I will have gone, I'll walk through fire. And by the end, I'll actually shine even brighter because I have, you know, yeah, dragged to the ends of stronger. Yes, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's very much built into our societal like, need for redemption in stories and and in characters and in our own lives. It's like, Mm -hmm. I think for myself, it's like, I definitely always I, and probably still subconsciously, it's like, I, I felt like, if things started off so bad in childhood, there must be some like reward at the end. There must be some greater lesson that I'll learn or arrive from. And I think what this book is doing uh, to me is, is it saying that actually like the traumas this woman has endured maybe haven't really made her into this like shining beacon. They really fucked her up. And (laughs) And if anything, it perpetuated more trauma. Absolutely. And, and we see that and we're like confronted by it, right? Because it's not what we want to see. We want to see her uh, find a way quickly in the book to like, turn this around. Like, let's see the ways that it's actually made you stronger. And, mm-hmm. and I, maybe it has made her stronger, but not in the way we think it's going to. It's actually probably made her stronger in this direction that is um, more surprising and and perhaps even more true to someone who may have lived this experience. And it it would also be easy to be like, oh, she has a mental illness or 
this is someone who is overrun by, you know, um, PTSD or her Mm -hmm. trauma, like to put a label on it, like we must label it to understand it. And I think also this book is defying that a little bit too. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, we're just going to hang out without the label and see what happens. And that is a very uncomfortable place to, to witness for sure. So it's so interesting. Absolutely. You've hit a lot of that for me. It is because de- you you're almost given that setup that things are going to be she she literally does this is told right in the beginning. It's not really a spoiler. She moves from New York to California. And it's thought to be she's she's wearing this white dress and she's starting over and you think it's going to be very much a redemptive kind of arc or her at least finding some sort of peace. And it's not that way. It's mm-hmm. her grappling with what she has brought with her and then sort of putting that upon the people that she meets around here and how trauma informs basically every decision she makes. You know, it's not comfortable, but it's not meant to be comfortable. It's meant to defy our expectations. And in that aspect, I think this book did really succeed, even if for me, it wasn't everything I was looking for in this narrative. Totally. Can I read uh, some of the lines from the book? It won't spoil Please anything. Do. Please yeah, do. I think this kind of goes along with what we're talking about. Um, this is toward the end, and it's Joan speaking. She says, My eyes shone with the absurdity of it all. I felt peace, you see, because I'd embraced the madness, and yet I don't believe it was madness. I use the word as shorthand. The world will call it madness. You can't convince normal people otherwise. There's a simple, small line at the mouth of hell. I mean, what a, isn't that a great line? Oh my <laughs> um, God. It's not a big deal when you get there. It's just another step is all. If you ever cross it as I did, you will see that black things become the most honest ones of all. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's really at the heart of this. It's like we're watching her cross the that line, the small mouth at the foot of hell or whatever. Like this yeah. is a character who's just being like, I'm succumbing to the Mm -hmm. result of this life and here's how dark it is and here is how honest it is for me and I think it's like a contract we sign at the start of the book almost Mm -hmm. that we're gonna go along with that because you kind of have to to like hang in there yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's such a wild ride this book does ask you to hang in there and I mean it may not be for everybody but I think if you do hang in there like you will gain something from the ride. I think there are just some really interesting thoughts and just really great prose in this book and some interesting character moments. And there are parts of this that are just going to really stick with me for a long time and not just the like horrible scarring points, but like some of the quieter moments Mm -hmm. and some of the, her relationship with Lenny, the landlord and how sickening that all felt in many ways, you know, it's, it doesn't sit with you well, but you're going to remember it. You're going to remember it. And I think also one relationship in the book with, with Vic, her, mm-hmm. her boss that we yeah. see evolve from start to finish really. Um, and that I felt was masterful too. the way we saw the full evolution of that relationship. She Mm -hmm. really traverses time in an interesting way in the book. We're really dealing with a lot of memory that feels so, uh, propulsive in the present moment. I think that's hard to do in writing and and we see him and and to me that relationship I would I would assume perhaps incorrectly, I don't know, but that that a lot of women have had like a Vic character. Yeah. Like 
like someone, someone in a position of power. Yeah. Someone, something where consent is on a fuzzy line a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. there's some culpability, but there there also isn't. It's it's one of those weird situations. It is. And I love reading about it because it's so hard to name, but you know it when you see it. And yeah. this is one of those relationships where and, and the narrator is very aware of of it. And so yeah. we're really hearing about it in this firsthand way where the narrator knows as much as we do. It's like, it's not this naive narrator where we see that she's in trouble, but she can't tell yet. It's like, no, she knows she's fully in trouble and we can tell. <laughs> so yeah. it's really interesting how she did that. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so much we could talk about in this book, but in the interest of time, I mean, it Obviously, we've said a lot about Animal here. And if you think this is the kind of book that's up your alley, I definitely recommend you look into it. Just be consider yourself warned. Um, but in terms of other books that I'd recommend, I always like to turn the conversation here. It was hard for me to pick a book. Um, in the end, I chose a book that we've discussed before on the show um, way back a couple seasons ago. And it's um, The Power by Naomi Alderman. That came to mind. I mean... Both on the surface, when you think about violence against women and how society has sort of been built upon that, and then seeing that flipped on you, what happens when women are now the aggressors, um, that book kept coming to mind for me. Obviously, that takes it in a more speculative direction than this book does, but it is a response to something innate and a response to a real genuine anger and hurt. And, but really telling us that we're all capable of the same depravity and the same, you know, instincts, not necessarily, you know, related to being man or woman, but being in that position of power. So I thought that was a really interesting book that kept coming to mind for me. And Chelsea, I'm interested if you have a book that was coming to mind for you. I do. And I'll, I'll say it. It's not out yet. It's, Mm -hmm. it's on the horizon. It's, I've read early drafts of it uh, multiple times. I actually just saw the cover today, Um, but it's called Aesthetica by Ali Robottom. And she was the Mm -hmm. author of Jello Girls. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you saw that. It was a memoir. Um, She writes a lot about motherhood too. And Aesthetica is this novel that really follows this sort of ex Instagram influencer and we're seeing her sort of in this transformative moment in her teenage years where she's like, she's rising to this Instagram fame and, and what that means. And it, it sort of thematically, I think, is really holding hands with Animal in a way because we're just seeing, again, the ways in which that, you know, this woman in the, in the book has kind of succumbed to some of the power that she knows she possesses with men. And then we see the damage of that sort of the, at the same time, the, the narrator feels empowered. She is in power in a lot of ways, but also um, ultimately she's not. And, and we see it through this sort of lens of memory and present day. And I also just think it's, I haven't encountered a book that is talking about such a specific world with, but yet we're, we're all in these social media realms. And, um, but, the character itself is so intriguing and really, you know, telling the story that I don't think we've seen yet. And I think people are going to love it. So I would just say that because it was the first one that came to mind. It'll be out soon enough. Write it on your list for to keep an eye out for. Allie's a tremendous writer and 
um, this will be her debut novel. So it's really exciting. Gosh, what what else? I guess I'll just say that because that's the first one that popped in. That's a great choice. And I always like it when people bring in books that are on the horizon, books to look out for. And I'm certainly going to take a look out for that. I've heard of Jell-O Girls. I hadn't gotten to it yet, but definitely sounds like a compelling premise across the board. And we were talking earlier before we started about White Oleander too. And I feel like that Mm -hmm. taps into some of this as well. I feel like your book taps into some of those themes as well, you know, generational trauma and complex motherhood, daughterhood relationships, all sorts of things going on in the, in these books. I mean, these, these are delicious themes and sometimes you just can't look away from them. No, I can't. (laughs) Not yet, at least. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then, so Chelsea, where can we find you and where can we find your book? Yeah, my book is for sale everywhere books are sold. Hopefully you'll choose your favorite local indie bookstore to support or mm-hmm. a great alternative would be bookshop.org. Yep. Um, an awesome site that supports local indies. And I am at Chelsea Beaker um, on Instagram, on Twitter, though I never go on Twitter, but... <laughs> I am on there. I do have a profile. I don't quite understand or know how to use it, but it's Instagram's more my drug of choice, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm similar. I've started getting into Twitter now because I feel like that's where all the writers hang out. But like Instagram just for me feels like a, a nicer space. I can look at all the pretty pictures and it. I don't get bogged down in some of the doom scrolling the way I do with Twitter. So yeah, Twitter just hits in a different way. It's like, it's a little unrelentless. At least with uh, Instagram, we're getting the the pretty pictures, like you said. Yeah, I can look at people's food and stuff. And yeah, a little less dread. Um, but absolutely, you you all want to check out Chelsea's book when it comes out. You know, when this episode's out, so will the book, and so definitely want to check that out. There'll be a link to uh, buy it in the show notes um, for bookshop or your local indie, wherever that may be. And Chelsea, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been just a joy to talk to you. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening, as always. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to let us know. Apple, Google, Spotify, every major podcast platform has a way to rate and review. So if you like us, give us five stars and drop a kind word. We really do appreciate it over here. And if you want to follow the show and keep up with what we're doing, you can follow me at Y on Instagram and Twitter, excuse me, at YFB Podcast, YFB, your favorite book, Instagram and Twitter. I am fairly active on both platforms. And look out for us every Thursday for new episodes. Next week, we'll be heading into a little bit of nonfiction, um, some more heavy subject material, but some really interesting insight along the way. Hope you join us. Till then, happy reading.